Well, again, glad to see you. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for worshiping with downtown Presbyterian Church. Kind of have to, I, I have to stay on myself. I always want to say thank you for worshiping at downtown Pres, and the church is not the building. The church is the people. So I probably should say for worshiping with downtown Presbyterian, but we're just glad you're here. And if, uh, if you're visiting, especially welcome. If there's any questions we can answer, please catch one of us. We'd love to be helpful. We just started our way into the book of Acts last week. That's the second book of the, excuse me, the fifth book of the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And so we just got started with that last week. We're going to make our way into chapter two this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow the passage there in the bulletin. It'll be Acts chapter two, verses one through 13. My spidey senses went off yesterday for some reason, and I thought, okay, wait, January 21st, January 21st. And I remembered that that is the day that I proposed to Dana, that 23 years ago, yesterday, I proposed to Dana, and thankfully she said yes, and was thinking back on that day, and I, um, which I would like to now recount in minute detail for the next 45 minutes. Now, just a few highlights. I won't, I won't go into detail, but... Um, you know, obviously you think about those things. Dana had said to me earlier, you know, I think if you're going to ask me to marry you, that I'm, I'll be able to tell when it comes. So that was like a challenge. Gauntlet was thrown down. So I'm thinking in secret and planning my secret strategy. And at the time, I was in seminary in St. Louis. She was an undergrad at Ole Miss. So drove down on a Friday to Oxford, Mississippi. And um, went and had dinner at a real just kind of average, nondescript place, you know, red herring. And then started putting these pieces together. And for us, there were these little facets of that night that in a way told a story about us or told a story about my own background. We, uh, the first time we ever had our DTR, you know, our define the relationship, we were on a walk in an old Oxford neighborhood and we stopped in front of this uh, antebellum home. It takes up a whole block of the oldest part of Oxford, Mississippi. And I found out who owned that house, and I found out this mutual friend that we had, and I got the friend to call the owner, and then I called the owner and said, may I, I've never met you, but may I borrow your house? And he said yes. So I got to have about two hours access to his house, and um, had set up stuff and, and proposed to her. I hardly had two nickels to rub together in seminary, but my mom had held on to a diamond that belonged to my great-grandmother, Haybig, and so that's in her engagement ring, and uh, there was a bottle of wine on hand. Yes, a bottle of wine, and it, uh, it was a bottle from the village in Germany where my ancestors lived and came to, uh, came to the States in the 1850s, and uh, just other, other parts like, what was, what was, oh, and then we went to the restaurant after that. We drove out to the restaurant, which stayed open late for us. And uh, had put roses on the table where we sat. We sat at the table where we first had dinner. So it was just these, these little facets that all told a story about our short history together and then about my family history. What, the passage that we're looking at this morning is the fulfillment of just so many promises, so many prophecies. It's the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not like he's never been in the Bible before, but... Prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus had been saying that in this definitive way, the Holy Spirit is going to come. So this is the fulfillment. Acts chapter 2, we call this event Pentecost. And I want to talk about that more in a second. But this is the decisive end of the Old Testament era. 
This is the end of the old covenant era. This is the beginning of the new covenant era. And God could have done it any way he wanted to. He could have done it on whatever day he wanted to, with whatever optics he wanted to. But he did it this particular way. And I want to stop and think about why this day? Why did it look that way? Why did it sound that way? And it's sort of like God was taking these different facets to tell a story. Uh, to, to embed meaning, to say, here's what this means. Here's what I am doing. So let's dive into this. Uh, Acts chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 1. And when, when this passage begins by saying they, it's referring to the 120 disciples of Jesus. Luke said right before this, there's a group of about 120 believers in Jesus. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. And rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews... Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, your, your words are more to be desired than gold, than much gold, sweeter than honey, even honey from the comb. Your words are like apples of gold in settings of silver. And Father, as we come, we, we come like sheep. We're weak. We wander off. We're tired. We need rest. We need to be fed. We have wounds that need to be bound up. We need you to be a shepherd to us, the shepherd to us, even through your word. So we ask that you'll do that right now. Show your power in our midst. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I've already said it, but let me say it again. This, this event is the end of the Old Testament era. It's the end of the Old Covenant age. It's a new beginning. Uh, and this is the fulfillment of all these pro- prophecies and all these promises. God could have done this any way he wanted to with whatever look, sound, feel, calendar, placement he wanted to. But he does it this way. And he tells us things through the way that he does it. So let's look at, then there's, there's 
some here that I can't even get to, but for time's sake, let me do a few. Let's look at this. The day, the fire, and the languages. All right? The day, the fire, and the languages. First off, it says, verse 1, the day, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, this is not the first time anyone had ever talked about there being a day of Pentecost. That already existed. What was the day of Pentecost? And to answer that question, we need to go back into the Old Testament roots of it. And I know that for most of us, that's unfamiliar, harder to navigate. So I'm going to try to give a a user-friendly version. If you go back into the Old Testament law that God gave to Moses, there were some feasts that were mandated. And any Israelite male was was to be each year at that feast. There were three a year that that were mandatory. And by the way, just pause And think about what that says about God. That God brings people out of slavery when they couldn't save themselves. He brings them into the wilderness. He gives them the law. And part of of his law, the laws on the books to, to these slaves is, okay, sometimes you just have to stop work and feast. You have to. That's the law. The heart of God. Okay, of those three mandatory feasts, the first two were Passover. And that one's more famous. That's the one that celebrates them coming out of slavery. And it's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because part of the commemoration was you made bread without leaven because you commemorated that they were, le- they were leaving in haste. They, were, they made bread on the fly. Didn't even, even have time to leaven the bread. So that was part of the celebration. Rescue from slavery and, and coming out. Seven weeks after that, Important, seven weeks after that, and really 50 days after the beginning of Passover, you had the next feast, and it was called the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks later. It was also called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus. In Leviticus, tuck this away, all right, it's called the Day of the First Fruits. 50 days after the Passover. And the Greek term for 50th would be where we get the word Pentecost. And one of the things that you would do in this commemoration was it was a celebration of the harvest. You know, people that were slaves, who didn't have their own land, who had to work in other people's fields and other land. They have their own land in the promised land. They have so much that they've got time to leaven the bread. They've got so much bread, they've got bread to share. And so you brought bread as an offering at that feast and waved it before the Lord. It was like you were saying, God, your promises are so reliable. And your provision in the promised land is so over the top. We've got bread to spare. Leaven bread to spare and we offer it back to you. The tone of it was um, the harvest is here. God's promise has come true. We have everything we need. We're not slaves. It was celebratory. You offered. That was the Feast of Harvest. That was, that was Pentecost. And of course, you'd, for that celebration, lots and lots of Jews would come into where? Jerusalem. The crucifixion of Jesus, the sacrifice of the definitive Lamb of God took place in proximity to what? The Passover. Christ dies, he rises from the dead, and between his resurrection and his ascension is a 40-day period. And he appears to all these people. We talked about this last week. He appears to his disciples. He appears to larger groups of people. He talks about the kingdom of God. 
And then he ascends into heaven. And then 10 days later, 50 days after the Passover, God fulfills these promises that were prophesied by the prophets. He fulfills this thing that John the Baptist said would happen. He fulfills this thing that Jesus said would happen. I'm going to leave you. And I know you don't want me to, but it's better for you that I leave because if I don't leave, the Spirit won't come. God will send the Spirit to you. Ten days after the ascension, on the 50th day, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes. Now think about this. What's the harvest that's being celebrated? Jesus spoke of a harvest in the Gospels. There was not a harvest of wheat or barley, or olives, or grapes. It was a harvest of people. He would say things like to his disciples, look around you. The fields are ready to be harvested. The harvest is people. Think about this. I, um, I feel like this is just recent where I've heard people use multiples as a verb. Like, I 3X'd my income. You know, or I 10x'd my productivity. That's a verb now. At Pentecost, God 25x'd the church. You know, it says that there was a group of 120 people. But when you get to the end of Acts chapter 2, how many people become Christians? 3,000. He 25x's the known followers of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. When you keep reading in the New Testament, you hear the apostles and others referring, especially to the first people who are reached in a region, in an area. They'll call them what? They're the first fruits. Paul really loved the Thessalonians. Very affectionate in his letters. And in 2 Thessalonians, he says, you know what? You were the first fruits. Those first members of the Thessalonian church. You get to Revelation where the apostle John sees these things that God lets him see. One of the visions is, he says, of 144,000 people. And that's just John's way of saying, a bigger group of God's people than I can describe. And they're called what? They are the first fruits redeemed for God and for the Lamb. God is saying what? Because the Spirit has come, now we celebrate the great ingathering, the great harvest. But it's not wheat and it's not grapes for the wine. It's people, people that you would never imagine believing in Jesus, coming to believe in Jesus. What else? The fire, verse 3. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them. Now, that's the whole group, not just the apostles. That's all 120. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And you think about the role of fire leading up to this point in the Bible. Let me give you a few snapshots. When Moses um, had left his rich upbringing and now is sort of in exile, he's working for his father-in-law, he's out in the wilderness, he saw a bush off in the distance and it was, it was glowing. It was on fire. And, but it doesn't burn up. And so he'd never seen that happen. So he goes over to this bush And there is a bush out in the wilderness on fire, and it's not burning up. And he hears God audibly speak to him and say, Moses, take off your shoes. You are standing on holy ground. It's just a wilderness, but it's holy ground because God is there. 
and he manifests himself as fire. Well, boy, Moses saw more of that in his life when he then steps into the, the role that we know of the leader of God's people out of slavery into the wilderness. When God's presence with, went with them, what did it look like? By day, pillar of cloud. By night, what? Pillar of fire. God gives Moses the law. The, part of the law was the detailed instructions for the tabernacle. You know, all of you are out here in the wilderness living in your tents. God is going to live in his tent in the middle of all your tents. And he's actually going to reside in the tent. In your midst. When the people build the, the tabernacle just the way they're supposed to. Moses over, uh, oversees it. Gives it his blessing. Then what happens? The cloud and the fire that tra- have traveled as a pillar inhabit the tabernacle. Saying what? The presence of God is actually here. So, and the same was said when the temple was built in the promised land. God's glory, God's presence inhabits it. So where did that go? And Jesus comes. And he said, and he, this was misunderstood and misconstrued. He said, hey, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. But he's talking about himself. I am the presence of God in your midst. I am God's house. But then, what did we talk about last week? He ascends into heaven. So now where is the temple of God? Now where is the house of God? What did God say at Pentecost? Not just to apostles, but to other everyday believers. The divine fire comes down and rests on them. And what does that say visually? It's not a destroying fire, but I am indwelling you as my temple. And the New Testament makes that explicit. Not just God's people as a whole, but the individual man or woman or child who believes in Jesus is the temple of the living God. Inhabited by the divine fire. Did you know that there's at least a couple of denominations that are headquartered, church denominations that are headquartered in Greenville? Uh, There's a Presbyterian one called Associate Reformed Presbyterian. But the one I wanted to put before you is less familiar. You may not even know that one, but this one's not very famous, but it's headquartered here. And if you ever see a church, and there's the name of the church, and then it says F-B-H-C-G-A, it's one of these churches. Do you know what that stands for? Fire Baptized Holiness Church of God of the Americas. Possibly the coolest denominational name in the United States. Fire Baptized Holiness Church of God of the Americas. Where did they get that name? Where did they get that cool name? You know, Acts is like Luke part two. Luke wrote the gospel in Acts. What did Luke part one say? Luke records that John the Baptist came and he said, I baptize you with water. But one comes after me who is mightier than me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, as I hear that and think about the the optics of of Pentecost, you know, my mind goes so many different directions. Let, Let me just say this. Think about this biblical truth that the belie- all of us together, but the individual believer in Jesus is indwelt by the divine fire. Let me ask you this. Why, primarily, should we not misuse sex? 
There's all kinds of reasons, physical, societal. It can hurt you. It can damage your insides. It can damage you physically through the transmission of diseases. It damages other people. Where there's breaches of trust, it damages communities attached to those two people. And all those are valid reasons and they're all true. But what is the great primary reason? The great primary reason is that the Christian has become a vessel of the divine fire. Not a destroying fire. A purifying fire. What does God want for us? Not to be naughty, be good little boys and girls. No, reflect what I am like as I indwell you. Why should we be patient? Why should we not be quick to anger? Why should we tell the truth? Why should we move toward the difficult person and not write them off? We are indwelt by the purifying fire. And here's the beautiful thing. If my purification, if my internal change was contingent on my like discipline and focus at any given moment, it would be just a train wreck. But no one has a more vested interest in purifying the believer than the Holy Spirit. That the one who is most vested and most interested in me experiencing change, me reflecting what God is really like, is the indwelling Spirit himself. Thank you, Lord. But there's also the languages. Verse 4. They were all filled, again, not just the apostles, but the whole group. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, when you hear tongues, of course, you can think about speaking in tongues. Is that some kind of weird, unknown language that just God lets somebody sort of magically speak? But then it makes it clear what kinds of languages. Verse 6. You've got all these people who are ethnically from all these different countries. The descendants of Jews who are spread out all over the world. But they're Jews in belief and practice. They've come to Jerusalem for the Pentecost. Verse 6. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? What was being said in all these different known languages? Verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And when it says the mighty works of God, what do you, what do you, what do you think that is? is? Is it primarily like the Exodus? Or is it one of the great stories like Jonah, Elijah? The coming, the fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah, the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lamb of God. And they say it without being taught, without, being, without knowing it. They say it to people from other nations in their language so that they can hear the gospel. Why would God do that? Because God so loved, what, just Judea? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and he tells the world Christians for centuries have looked at this passage and 
they've, they've kind of, at least for centuries, and maybe it's truer to say for millennia they've recognized this, they've kind of put one finger over here in Acts and said, wait, look way back here at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 10, there's this list of all these nations that come from Noah and his sons. But right after that chapter is the account of the Tower of Babel. The the people of the earth decided that they were going to make a name for themselves. And at this point, everybody spoke the same language. And sort of as an act of, we will be God, We'll, we'll get the attention, we'll get the praise. They build a tower to the heavens, and God comes and confuses them and disperses them, but he makes them speak other languages that they had not spoken up to that point. And Christians have looked at this, and some people have said Pentecost is like the undoing of Babel. It's like the reversal of Babel. I don't know that that's the best way to say it. Because at Pentecost, it's not like everybody started speaking one language again. But what is it? It's the healing of Babel. It's the restoration of what happened at Babel. Not by making everybody speak the same language, but all the different languages there saying, there is this one thing that is such incredible news that the different cultures and peoples and regions of the earth can gather around it as one. Now, so what? And um, the seminary that Jake and I both went to, the chapel at that seminary is named after a man. He had passed away before either of us, uh, either of us got there, but he used to teach preaching. And uh, even though I never got to meet him, people who had him told me this story that he would tell his students in his preaching classes, look, when you get out there one day, I'm going to be... I want you to see me standing on the back row and I've got my arms crossed and I'm staring at you and I'm asking you one question. So what? Okay, Noah's Ark was those dimensions. So what? Those laws are in the Bible. So what? That genealogy. So what? All right? Day of Pentecost, fire, temple, languages. So what? Let me throw one out to you. Do you realize how easy it is in the New Testament era, in the New Covenant era, to live like we're still in the Old Covenant? And there's a lot of different ways we could go with that, but let me say, let me say one in, in particular. Something that comes very naturally to the people of God, not just in the Old Covenant era, but in the New Covenant era. Like right now, and I know this from my own experience, is that we believe, we believe in Jesus, believe in the, the Lamb of God, we want our friends and family to believe it like we do, and so we, we, we believe, and we find those people that we love who believe, and we find our community that believes, and what comes naturally to us is to circle the wagons and kind of say, okay, let's ride out this storm called the big bad world keep our wagon circled, let's just try to survive this and keep believing and then go to heaven. That is an old covenant impulse. I'm not saying it was the covenant's fault. I'm just saying that's what God's people have historically done. But what is it to live like a new covenant person is to say, man, the Messiah came and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit But the thing to do now is not circle our wagons and protect our little culture 
And let's ride this out and try to go to heaven and not become pagans at the end of it. But with what Christ has done for us and with the indwelling of the Spirit to move into the world as his witnesses. Why does the Holy Spirit give us power? He gives us power to change, but he gives us power to be his witnesses. Not to be experts, not to know the answer to every question, but to be his witnesses in the world and to move into it. I want to read you an example that, that landed with me. And I want you to hear someone else saying this, not, not me. This book came out several years ago. It's called Out of the Salt Shaker into the World. Because, you know, Christians have said for some time that Christ, Jesus said, you're salt. You're the salt of the earth. He doesn't say try to become salt. He says you are salt. What we tend to be is like live in the salt shaker. And ooh, why? Don't shake me out of there because I might touch something unsavory. The salt is for coming out of the shaker. So this is a book about being witnesses. It's called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World by Becky Pippert. I want you to hear how she describes what happened one day in her life. She was trying to learn about how do I do this? How do I be a witness of Jesus when I'm bad at it and it frightens me? And someone had encouraged her when she was uh, living in Barcelona to work with a college group to meet with some students and say, look, if you want to talk about God, talk about spirituality, talk about Jesus, let's have this discussion group. So she had it, I think, over the course of a whole semester. But one of her Christian friends had said, look, at some point you need to ask people in that group, what is keeping you from becoming a Christian right now. So she decided she was going to do that with the most, uh, with the most hard-boiled opponent. There was a guy who was an atheist in the group. Kind of the only reason he came was just to be disruptive in the meetings, but he, they liked each other. His name is Todd. So she thought, I'll get together with Todd because I already know he's not going to become a Christian. So they met for coffee at a restaurant in Barcelona. And here's what happened. I said, Todd... You've been part of this discussion all semester. You've heard a lot about God. You've never decided what to do with God. One of these days, you're going to have to decide. Sooner or later, God is going to speak to you and say, decide now. And what are you going to say? And then she says, I was feeling so proud for sounding firm, even though I knew my confidence stemmed only from the fact that he would never respond. That I failed to notice how serious his face became. Todd said, you're right. God is speaking. I'm saying yes. She said she kept talking because she didn't even hear him. She said, you're going to have to make a decision one of these days when you stand before God. Todd said, God has been speaking to me right now. I said, yes. She said, Todd, don't scare me like that. Becky, I'm not kidding. I've been thinking about this for a long time and I'm ready now. Todd, listen to me. You can't rush into this. I mean, it's a huge decision, and it'll change your life so much. You better think it over. Becky, this isn't an emotional decision. I know I put up a good front, but I've been thinking about God for a long time. Now, look, I want to become a Christian right here in the restaurant in front of everybody. Todd, I can't. Why not? Because I've never done anything like this before. Don't worry, I haven't either, he answered. I tell you what, let's close our eyes. I'll say something like, okay, so the atheist will lead them in prayer. Let's close our eyes. I'll say something to God, and then you do, and it'll be over in just a few minutes. So they prayed, 
they opened their eyes and she said she was nervous about like that he might feel some pressure to feel something immediately. So she said to him, you know, like you don't have to feel anything right now. He said, I feel totally different right now. I looked at him in utter shock. Todd, oh my goodness, it works. <laughs> I'm so glad for accounts like that because it's I mean, an, just an old sort of covenant impulse. Again, it's not the covenant's fault. But this circle the wagon, this doesn't really work. People don't change. We kind of maybe are supposed to say this good news because we're supposed to, but we do it out of duty. You don't see weird conversions anymore. Nice people come to church. Maybe average people come to church, but not really bad people are ever converted. To hear that like the least likely person no warm-up. I mean, there's investment over the weeks, but just out of the blue, I am ready to follow Jesus now. The, the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't you think that, like, we are largely speaking in abstractions. If we don't stop right now and th- think in your mind, if you don't mind, right now, picture the person either in your family or in your neighborhood or that you went to school with, or who you work with, that, quote, could never become a Christian. Picture that person. Aren't we supposed to pray that we might have the privilege to be a bridge between that person and Jesus? We can't change them. But the Spirit has been given. We don't have to circle our wagons. Yeah, let's have deep relationships. Let's gather. But then let's go out and pray that God would use us as a conduit of the Holy Spirit. That others who, right now thinking about it, it shocks us that this could happen. That others would come to know Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, please do that. Please Make us your witnesses in Greenville. Make us your witnesses in our downtown. But make us your witnesses to the end of the earth. We pray that we won't feel so pressured to know everything to say or how to answer every question. And we pray that our hearts would be encouraged this morning and fear would not control us that you would send us out as your spirit, uh, as your witnesses. Thank you for making us your house. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.